This yes. is hell. All right, then. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people. Yes, this is hell. Amazon is worse than you can imagine, and that's the last thing they want you to do. Imagine a future where there is an alternative to neoliberalism. Yes, Amazon actively works to wipe the notion from its workers' minds of any alternative to our increasingly precarious life of unstable, high-pressure work with continuing downward pressure on worker pay and benefits. They pit worker against worker, imposing a highly individualistic work environment that divides workers between the deserving and not deserving human beings and the bad, unproductive ones who need to be culled from the herd. This precarious nature of work is not only at Amazon, but as today's guest argues, Amazon is the apogee of this kind of labor relations. And if we're not careful, we'll be living in a dystopian world where workers are at each other's throats and grateful for whatever scraps billionaires throw at us while refusing to recognize we have far more in common with our co-worker, who we just stabbed in the back, than the tycoon tossing us crumbs. Of course, there is an alternative, no matter how much Amazon and Jeff Bezos want there not to be any, and that alternative is collectively organizing outside our workplaces that are now structured to stymie any labor organizing whatsoever. And in the working class communities where precarious workers live, public common spaces where we can find out just how hard we're getting screwed. We'll get an even better appreciation of how much Amazon and Jeff Bezos sucks when we speak in a few minutes with writer and editor and political sociologist Panos Theodoropoulos, who wrote the Roar magazine article, Rituals of Submission, Amazon's creation of the neoliberal worker. Amazon creates a collective identity that is firmly rooted in neoliberal ideals. To change it, unions and social movements must focus on building the commons. Panos is a member of the Interregnum Collective and is currently based in Athens. He has a PhD in sociology from the University of Glasgow. You can follow Panos on Twitter at Panos Theodorop, then the number six. Panos Theodore OP, the number six. Find out more about the Interregnum Collective at interregnum.live. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, anything new by you? Did you see Jeff Dorchin naked this morning? I sure did. Oh. It was quite a surprise. <laughs> what else is new by you outside of that? Oh, I'm working on a little streaming theater show with my little scrappy trapdoor theater. Are you really? Yes, sir. And uh, when's that going to be happening? It's happening this weekend. Okay. No and uh, if anyone's interested, you can just go to trapdoortheater.com to check it out. It's uh, a theater show about uh, uh, kind of can the artist re inhabit the theater after this, you know, pandemic, and so much time away or will the theater reject the artists oh crazy so is it uh how what is the format it's not like a zoom meeting or anything like that what, how does it work no um i i think we're we're, we're uh, streaming to youtube but, okay. but you have to go to the trapdoor site to to uh, purchase the tickets to to uh, gain access oh crazy so trapdoor so, so, so it's a live performance right but at you know eight o'clock on friday and saturday uh, only this weekend. Okay, so right. go, people can go to uh, trapdoortheater.com? Yes, sir. 
and they can check out what's the name of the uh, performance it's called and the way we St stared that's <laughs> kind of a weird title it's a lot of texts from charles me gertrude stein and matei vishnek uh they combine that together and then improvise some other things and it's it's a little crazy performance rd kind of piece awesome so people can find it at trapdoortheater.com yes sir for the first time in months, I actually had seven, well, let's say six and a half straight hours of sleep. I know we humans are supposed to get eight hours of sleep a night, but I'm ecstatic about oh, almost seven consecutive hours of unconsciousness. And this weekend, I'm hoping against hope that I can actually get a full night's eight hours of sleep. I don't know what I'm going to have to do to do that. I may have to take some sort of drugs to keep me unconscious. I have no idea, but man... It sure was nice to at least get six and a half hours of sleep. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, where did it all go wrong? <laughs> where did it all go wrong? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff gives an, uh, Jeff gives an avowed centrist a lesson in radical socialist leisureism. Jeff gives an avowed centrist a lesson in radical socialist leisureism or leisureism. Rich will have more of your answers to this week's question mail following our guest. As this week marks our 25th year on air at WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment, we asked you yesterday how you originally discovered This Is Hell. Daniel sent an email to chuck at thisishell.com writing, I found out about This Is Hell around 2002 because the forum, democraticunderground.com, would always place a link to your show at the top of their pages when you went live. They might do that still. I'm not usually on there on weekday mornings, so I'm not sure. Signed, Daniel. So I did a cursory check of democraticunderground.com this morning, and it doesn't appear that they still post links to This Is Hell. However, I'll contact them this weekend to make certain they know about our new schedule. I'm not sure. Maybe they still are posting a direct link on Saturday mornings to WNUR's stream or WNUR's playing of our show. But uh, as of today, I didn't see anything over there, so I'll contact them. We also asked members of the new Facebook group that Jeff Dorchin started called Welcome to the Hell Hole. Welcome to the Hell Hole. How they found out about the show. If you want to get welcomed into the Hell Hole, either contact me or Jeff via Facebook or email, and we'll get right on it. Greg posted, damn it, I was just trying to figure this out last night when I drafted, but deleted a reply to our 25th anniversary post yesterday. I've been listening to This Is Hell since my oldest was born-ish, so almost 10 years. Let's go with, you did an interview with someone I wanted to hear talk more about their work, and then I was hooked on The Hangover Cures, Twist Off Knowledge. I miss Twist Off Knowledge, but given less interstitial time, I understand why it's gone, and for straight hours of this is hell every week so greg there are rumors that the horrible awful contract we signed with national beer where we're not compensated in any way for discussing national beer or twist off knowledge well apparently that contract has not expired and as we argued it has so 
We may be legally obligated to have the return of National Beer's twist-off knowledge in the very near future. National Beer is the only beer that comes in a can with a twist-off cap. Inside every cap of National Beer is a hieroglyph, a pictograph, a rebus, if you will, that imparts onto you, the soon-to-be-drunk drinker of National Beer, a little bit of twist-off knowledge, and that might be coming back in the very near future. Sparrow says they found out about This Is Hell from one of my crappy ex-boyfriends, had good taste in radio shows, I guess. Having been exposed to the horrors of right-wing talk radio as a child, I thought he was trying to torture me with Saturday morning talk radio. I was pleasantly surprised by the goofiness and scope of This Is Hell, so I ditched the dude and kept you lot in my life, more or less. Sparrow, who needs a crappy boyfriend when you can have This Is Hell? Bradley says he can't recall exactly when he discovered This Is Hell, but it must have been sometime in 2016 when he writes he was undergoing my radicalization inspired by Bernie Sanders' campaign. I was bringing on lefty podcasts all... I'm sorry. I was binging on lefty podcasts all day instead of doing work at work. I must have heard about it on some other podcast and added it to my list. I was hooked after my first listen. I've pared down significantly on my podcast, but this is hell is high on the short list. Thanks, Bradley, for keeping us on your short list. Finally, Adam says he discovered this is hell while on an expedition to search out the light at the end of the vast tract of despair at watching the world putrefy with apathy, which seemingly ended with the puckering cloaca of cable news. I clung to many cancerous polyps along the way, and I used to think the world just needed to take a healthy dump. And all I had to do was hang on to one of those polyps and survive the inevitable purge. Cable News was happy to tell me to be angry at those people and never bothered to examine what drove them, and I was happy to listen, as long as it wasn't me who was to blame. But it never before occurred to me that there was a source of vast, gigantic maw eating its way to certain doom, and whatever it ingested would eventually bear long, stinky, diseased fruit that would trap itself in this vast tract and cause the world around it to metastasize into the very hell I sought escape from. Yeah, I ended a sentence with a preposition. Eat flatus and die, you grammar Nazis. This is hell is nature unveiled. I've been listening for a long time now. It's kind of ruined me in that I'm pretty willing to accept anything that's better and don't care much about how it's done as long as it's not worse. And that means following the threads and tugging at them and seeing what doesn't immediately fall apart. And it turns out that's a lot of things, but I'm glad to have it around. Thanks, Adam. And we would criticize you for ending a sentence with a preposition, but you know, we would never do that. Tell us how you originally discovered This Is Hell by emailing me at chuck at thisishell.com or by asking to become a member of Welcome to the Hellhole and then posting there. Coming up, Amazon and Jeff Bezos are way, way more evil than you can imagine. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to our Facebook page, tweet it to us, or email it to us, but we must have the answer, your answer, by the end of tomorrow's show. Richard will also be telling us who is on the rest of this week's shows, and we'll be sharing a couple of emails about our upcoming 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and 
Art Show, which is happening in two months on Saturday, September 18th at Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from this here studio. And we'll be reminding you about uh, Jeff Dorchin's reading of Moments of Truth live this Saturday, July 24th, at the exact same place, Carrie's Lounge, beginning at 2 p.m. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is hell. Something happened at Amazon during the beginning of the pandemic. The company's intense focus on productivity could not be maintained due to the possibility of transmitting the virus, which means Amazon workers actually had the opportunity to talk to one another and not only view themselves and each other as competition, which is what Amazon wants them to do. They actually started seeing, they see themselves only as individual workers out for themselves in hopes of one day earning the right and privilege to be a permanent worker in a labor setting of incredible precarity, leaving you with a complete lack of power and a feeling of indebtedness and gratitude toward your employer, which is what Amazon and Jeff Bezos want. All workers to feel, feel here to help us understand just how dangerous and dystopian Amazon is and can be. Political sociologist, writer, and editor Panos Theodoropoulos wrote the Roar magazine article, Rituals of Submission, Amazon's Creation of the Neoliberal Worker. Panos is a member of the Interregnum Collective and is currently based in Athens. You can follow Panos on Twitter at Panos Theodorop, number six, and you can find out more about the Interregnum Collective at interregnum.live. Welcome to This Is Hell, Panos. Um, thanks for having me. Um, and also congratulations for uh, your 25 years. Um, it's certainly a remarkable achievement. I tried to do something similar once and I didn't even last for 25 days. So <laughs> much respect. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Uh, so you write, that, yeah, I can imagine. you write that throughout the history of capitalism, systems of labor management have changed significantly. Instead of the heavy forest reality of permanent employment in a single unionized industry from adolescence to retirement, most workers in the U.S. are now experiencing the fluidity and insecurity of precarity employment. This labor regime is characterized by a rise of job agencies, a lack of labor rights, temporary contracts, and the almost complete absence of unions. These structural changes are accompanied by an intense focus on the workers as individuals with governments, educational systems, and cultural production, increasingly promoting the values of individualism, entrepreneurship, and competition in a race to the bottom where the most adaptable, most able-bodied, and most obedient survive to work another day. Amazon is the the apogee of this new system. How does this imposed individualism affect relationships between workers? Right. So this is a, this is of course a huge question. Um, uh, but uh, I'm gonna just uh, offer a few pointers, and then you know uh, we can choose uh, which uh, of the many directions we can follow uh, more in depth. Um, so basically what I observed uh, when I was working in Amazon, uh, for seven months during the pandemic was obviously that uh, you had, uh, you know, we all know the horror stories about Amazon. We've all heard them, um, you know, uh, workers pissing in bottles and stuff, uh, falling asleep. Uh, it's crazy. Um, but in that specific warehouse, um, and this is where I want to make a slight correction on your introduction. Um, uh, if that's okay. Uh, it was what I observed only existed in that specific warehouse because it was it's the smallest warehouse that Amazon has in the world. Um, and therefore, it was impossible to maintain social distancing. And therefore, um, some of the things, some of the horrible, um, you know, pressure to perform all the time to run around and stuff 
that was lifted because we objectively couldn't maintain distances. Which means that in turn, I, I got to I got to see um, uh, some something of the of the reality that is usually not uh, observable. Um, and uh, then, um, uh, you know, the individualism becomes a lot more apparent um, in how uh, Amazon has, uh, in how Amazon is attempting to create a sort of collective identity that is individualist. Um, it's uh, it's kind of it's it's kind of complex because you know how can you create a collective identity of individualism? But there is this sort of sense of like we are all in this together as individuals. Um, it's like we are, you know, it's as if you've been thrown, um, uh, I don't know, in the arena um, uh, in the Roman Empire. And, uh, you know, you, 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 ha you feel a certain affinity with all of the other gladiators, but at the end of the day, you've got to kill each other. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a very particular thing. Um, the way that this is expressed most, uh, um, the, the most blatant way that this is expressed is by, of course, uh, the fact that you know um, if you're a green badge, or I think in, uh, in the US it's called white badge, it's basically a way of designating who is a permanent worker and who isn't. Blue badges are permanent, um, white or green badges are uh, the non-permanent. These people are with uh, an agency. Um, so the most blatant way that this individualism is expressed is that you know that at the end of the day, um, they will, you know, let's say that you are, I don't know, 20 workers um, that are precarious and uh, temporary. You know that only two of you get, you know, selected um, to be onboarded and to work directly for Amazon. So obviously, you gotta, you've always gotta strive to outperform everybody else. Um, but. You know, you cannot do that uh, in a very overt way because uh, Amazon also supposedly values teamwork and stuff like that. Because obviously, Amazon is not stupid. They've uh, done rigorous research of the production process and they know that without some degree of cooperation, it is impossible to maintain their, pro their productivity targets. So, you've got, so you, you, you're caught in this uh, weird, uh, um, you know, I, I don't know. Um, what was that word in English for the place in between hell? You're caught in this weird purgatory <laughs> where you depend on others, but at the same time, you know that uh, you've, uh, you've got to outperform them. And then this is also expressed in collective rituals, which we will talk about later, um, uh, in the general environment, in uh, the slogans that are written on the walls of the warehouse, you know, um, about, uh, you know, competitiveness and individualism and uh, customer obsession and all of these, you know, amazing... Uh, slogans so you've got a whole system which is uh, which is overwhelming and uh, really drives workers against each other and you talk about going to this meeting where uh, they call in all the workers they uh, give you guys free burgers and fries and drinks and the whole point is that your site manager announces that one of your colleagues has been made associate of the month a prize that comes with prestige and a 50 pound Amazon voucher this associate not employee not colleague has proven himself worthy of becoming a permanent employee starting from next month he will be awarded the coveted 
blue badge. And you point out that that small celebration of the Associate of the Month presentation betrays some important elements of the real dystopia behind Amazon's patented smile. These performances intend to reinforce Amazon's already held beliefs about itself, its purpose, and its identity. In that sense, these events fulfill an almost ritualistic purpose. The walls are lined with inspirational slogans, as you said, and the photographs of previous Associates of the Month. The gifts offered to staff in the form of free food and other trinkets have the purpose of <clears throat> showing our boss what's you know appreciation for our hard work when you worked at uh, amazon did the workers feel appreciated after free burgers a break and the announcement of associate of the month or could they see right through the ritual as you call it so again it's a little bit more sinister because uh, it's not uh, black and white everybody you know everybody was overworked everybody was precarious that's um, you know, uh, I don't want to keep on repeating myself all the time, so I will just say it uh, from the start. We have to remember how precarious everybody is whenever we're having these conversations. This is the, this is the foundational condition that uh, underlies all the other discussions we're going to have. So everybody's extremely precarious. Uh, your shifts can be cut without uh, any notice. Um, uh, you know, people have been overworked, uh, blah, blah, blah. People have children. Um, they're struggling to make ends meet. So there's a lot of pressure and that hovers. That, that's, uh, that's a pressure that's hovering above our heads. Um, so that being said, um, do people see through it? People under, uh, uh, from what I observed, people did see through it. Um, they understood how ridiculous it was, but at the same time, because they they are actually compelled to do so, um, they, they partook in the system and re replicated the system and they didn't criticize it more than just a few words of like, okay, you know, they're paying us with burgers, blah, 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 you know, joke. But this does not uh, lead to any sort of collective uh, um, resistance or something like that. And there is a term, and now excuse me for the jargon, but it's a very important term for anybody wanting to organize with precarious workers. Um, uh, it's a term coined by uh, sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, Bourdieu, a French guy, um, and it's called habitus. And this is a term that describes the, the, the sum of behaviors and ideas and even subconscious ideas that are expressed um, by a subject, by, by a worker, by a woman, by a, I don't know, by an oppressed person, by whoever. Um, it's things that you have internalized uh, through your socialization in this current society. And uh, Bourdieu says that these things are virtue made of necessity. And this is the crucial point. Virtue made of necessity. We are all living in objectively unequal, terrible conditions. Um, but we still, we, we are thoughtful beings and uh, we have critical capacities. So we try to rationalize um, our existence. We try to find meaning in our existence, and uh, we justify it. We try. We we, we don't want to say, you know, everything is everything is messed up, um, and so I will just roll over and die. We try to find some good. We try to find something that will um, protect our self-esteem. So we turn our our necessity into a virtue, and this is something which uh, is uh, very clearly observed in Amazon, especially with the absence of a. Uh, of a strong and trustworthy uh, trade union movement or an oppositional movement. If you don't have an oppositional movement in these places, this allows the narratives that Amazon pushes 
to basically uh, fester without any opposition. So people understand how ridiculous it is to you know to to be to to risk uh, to to be in the risk of being fired the next day and yet your employers are giving you burgers and they're happily cheering for you as if you're in an asylum or something but they try to rationalize this and they say okay you know i don't have an alternative right now so i'll just play along and over time they become fully sculpted by this system so you can clearly see um for example people who've been there a long time even if they don't believe in it they still act as if they do <laughs> even if privately they might say okay this is a bunch of you know whatever um and the people who are, haven't been there a long time um uh, they will either just uh, sort of like you know fall in line or they'll be you know initially they'll be like okay what is this but then they will fall in line so absent a larger collective narrative of resistance um i would say that yes people see through it but uh, they, that does not mean that they resist it and you point out that as we participate in cheering for these workers, the new Associates of the Month, we collectively reinforce both the underlying premises of the celebration and our own beliefs that someday we could be the ones in their position. Do you believe this to be a... Because I want to make sure that we drive this point home to the listening audience. Do you believe this mm-hmm. to be a purposeful and intentional tactic to divide workers and pit them against one another? Does worker competition, is it made to intentionally undermine worker organization yeah no absolutely absolutely it's absolutely that is absolutely the purpose um it's very cynical it's uh, it's disgusting back in the day it was uh, it wasn't uh, color-coded with uh, you know beautiful language and uh, you know all these uh, stupid slogans that amazon currently has but it's uh, exactly the same process um so um as we uh, so for example just for your for your uh, listeners who haven't read the article Every so often, Amazon will have, they will bring us in the common room and, uh, you know, all of the precarious workers and uh, the permanent workers. The permanent workers are also precarious, by the way, but, you know, there's levels to this. Anyway, so we'll go in the room, in the common room, the canteen, whatever you call it, and uh, there will be a sort of small celebration for people who have uh, excelled above the rest and who have shown an exceptional commitment to Amazon's values of customer obsession, of, you know, attention to detail, of basically working as hard and as efficiently as possible. Um, so these people will get promoted. Um, and this happens once a month, once every two months, but usually in, my, in, the, in the location where I worked, it happened once a month. Um, and, uh, you know, okay, obviously they cannot hire a new person each month, but, uh, even in the cases where they don't hire somebody, they still find somebody and they pick him out from, they pick them out from the rest and they give them a, an award like, uh, you know, a 50 pound voucher or just, you know, employee of the month. And then obviously if you're made employee of the month, uh, your chances to eventually become a permanent uh, employee increase. Um, uh, and uh, we all, you know, the, the manager makes a small speech about how this person has excelled in helping us. And, uh, you know, they, they put their ego to the side for the sake of the company, which of course is an, is, is an individualistic act. The only time where you're permitted to not be an individualist is when uh, you are supporting Jeff Bezos's individualism. Um, but anyway, so there is this whole ritual and we're supposed to clap and cheer for them and we're happy for them and we are objectively happy for them because it means that this person has uh, reached a level of security that they were striving for, uh, maybe even for a year. 
Um, and at the same time, everybody's like, okay, that could have been me. I, 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 that should have been me. Um, and uh, when you participate in the system of lunacy for long enough, um, uh, apologies for the word lunacy was a bit insensitive, but when you participate in this, you know, the collective illusion for long enough, you, um, uh, you, you also become sculpted by the system. And I found that even me, even myself, um, there were times where I worked very, very hard, <laughs> even though I, I had gone to Amazon with the intention of organizing uh, and I wanted to undermine the system. But, you know, sometimes I would see somebody get rewarded and I'd be like, you know, this person, they, okay, I saw them slacking yesterday. Or, you know, that time when we had so much work, this person was not working hard and stuff. So not only does it create competition, but it creates a, a sort of like system of surveillance uh, where workers survey each other alongside the algorithms and the computers and all of that stuff, the, 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 the high-end technology that uh, Bezos has um, introduced in Amazon. So it's, 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 it's complete 1984. It's Orwellian. And you also point out that Amazon does its hiring for pickers and packers exclusively through employment agencies. This absolves the company from all responsibility towards its workers and maintains Amazon's right to dismiss them whenever it wants. So to what extent then are Amazon workers Amazon workers and how is that an obstacle for labor organizing? Right. So this is a very important point. And uh, once again, I want to state that my conclusions uh, um, uh, refer to the situation in the UK. So uh, somebody from the US might have a different experience. But as far as I know, in the UK, all of their hiring is done through employment agencies. Um, if you excel in your job, blah, 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 as I said before, there is a small chance that you will be made permanent. But most of the time, it's, uh, you, know, you work your ass off and you get fired at the end of your contract. Um, if, you don't, if you don't work your ass off, you get fired before the end of your contract. And they don't have to give you a warning or anything like that. <laughs> So what is an employment agency? Uh, an employment agency is simply like a, a third party, a subcontractor, as we say. Um, uh, so basically, Amazon pays uh, a company to supply flexible, precarious workers. Uh, these workers don't have any rights. Um, they, well, okay, they have some rights, but uh, much less than they should have. Um, and uh, they are easily transferable between sites. Uh, basically, their contract is with the parent company, not with Amazon. However, the lines between uh, um, uh, these companies, these agencies, and Amazon increasingly become blurred because as the system expands and is becoming more rationalized, you start getting phenomena where a single agency exists simply to supply Amazon. You know, they don't have other contracts. So basically, Amazon is, is sort of like maintaining other companies simply so it is absolved of the responsibilities of employing, of actually directly employing workers. But these workers are still Amazon workers. I mean, if you're with that agency and Amazon fires you, you're not, you're not finding another job anywhere else. Uh, you got to go somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, I, am, uh, I don't. So I think I might have lost uh, track of the question, but uh, yeah, can you repeat it? Can't workers just simply organize and put pressure on the employment agency instead of Amazon? How does this employment agency getting between being, you know, being an Amazon worker and being a member, somebody who works for the employment agency? How does that interfere with labor organizing? 
Yes, um, so that was the that was the train of thought that I missed. So because uh, because the workers are easily transferable between each other, um, between different sites, etc. Uh, most of the time, um, they don't get to stay in one site. Um, also, you know, in order to build organizations, in order to build unionization drives, uh, the main thing that you need is trust. Uh, you need to know people, um, and you need to trust them. There have been cases of precarious workers organizing, but maybe we will talk about that later because this needs a, a different structure. Um, however, the way that it is, because everybody is intensely precarious, because they can be fired at any time, and because many people have only been there for a few months, um, all of this cumulatively means that there is no trust. But even if there is trust, if let's say people have been there for one year and they're all working together at the same site, even if there is trust, you might be fired the next day. It's extremely easy to fire you. Nothing protects you. And even though, um, at least in the UK, the Equality Act of 2010 um, protects people from uh, being fired for union activity, um, uh, you know, it's, it's considered against your human rights. Um, Amazon doesn't have to say that it fired you because you're organizing. Amazon can just say they, they fired you because you were underperforming. Um, and because the, because the requirements, the job requirements are so high and so intense, probably they will be able to find um, a lot of instances where you actually did underperform given their standards. So it's, uh, it's incredibly difficult to organize under these conditions. People are afraid to lose their jobs. Plus people don't trust each other so much. But I would say that the main thing, and this is the core of my research as a sociologist, the main thing that makes it difficult is not the structure because the capitalists are going to be doing, the capitalists are gonna do what they wanna do. That is that they're looking out for their interests. Um, it is much more productive to focus on what we can do. And uh, based on my experience, I found a glaring lack of union or any social movement activity, a glaring lack of any social movement presence inside Amazon and around Amazon. So if these workers don't have an alternative narrative that they can focus on, that, that, that they can trust, that they can believe in, why would they risk their jobs? Some people have kids, you know, like some people were migrants like myself and they were sending remittances home. You've got a whole, you know, network of people that are counting on you or that are, that are, that are counting on you to maintain this shitty job. Um, apologies for the word. So, yes, the system is, is designed intentionally in a way that breaks up solidarities, that impedes union drives and stuff like that. But the real issue is what we can do about it. Because the more we don't do anything about it, the worse it's going to be getting. That's one of the points that you make, that this is not just an issue with Amazon. How can the business structure of Jeff Bezos's business structure of uh, Amazon workers, how can that affect workers in other industries, at other warehouses? So for me, for example, I, I was, I've been working in the UK ever since uh, uh, the Greek economic crisis. That's why I moved to the UK. Um, and I've seen uh, similar patterns of labor organization in uh, at least five other warehouses. The only warehouse, so this is interesting. Um, this uh, this uh, situation is not uniform. And... Uh, Unions and organizers need to observe the differences between uh, the, the culture of every company. There are companies that uh, function in a way where everybody is an interchangeable cog in the machine. This is Amazon, for example. In those contexts, uh, you can maintain precarity uh, because you're, you are intrinsically uh, replaceable as a worker. There are other companies 
which uh, rely on a strong culture because they are building very, very complex things. For example, a radiator factory I worked in. Uh, we were building commercial radiators for, um, uh, you know, uh, oil, uh, how do you call it, for oil ships and stuff like that, um, and for planes and stuff like that. So we're talking about massive things that cost hundreds of thousands per unit. In a company like that, um, they don't want replaceable people. They want people that they can train, build up, build up good relationships with. It's not because they're good humans. It's just because they're good capitalists. Um, so there are many different, uh, there are many different modalities which precarity can assume. So, for example, in a company that relies on tight-knit relationships, they will probably just use agency workers for about one or two months when they have a shortage of workers, see who is a good worker, and then they will um, employ them. So in that way, it's sort of a management tool. Um, companies like Amazon, companies which, in which the workers, the labor process is uh, highly automated and interchangeable, um, they will probably keep on using agency workers, um, and uh, their rights will be made even worse, especially with the current state of uh, neoliberal governments um, uh, in the West. Um, and uh, yeah, the system will expand. And uh, the, the crazy thing is that the company is paying more um, to the uh, Amazon is paying more to the other company for, for an Amazon worker than they would have to pay them if they were directly employed. Um, that's how the other company makes profits. So actually for Amazon, it is more profitable to pay a higher salary in exchange for no rights than it is to just pay a worker a little bit less. Well, that's that's really fascinating. I've never never thought about it that way. You write that when the mechanics of Amazon's labor practices are considered in their totality, the intent behind the ritualistic celebrations like the Associates of the Month celebrations comes into view. The entire performance has the objective and direct consequence of crafting workers that are grateful for the opportunity to participate in entrenching their own alienation. So is it meant to make the worker feel like they are in debt somehow to Amazon? And, and does that indebtedness have an impact on attempted unionizations, like the one that failed in Bessemer, Alabama? So um, uh, these are two separate questions. Please, uh, uh, if, if you want, I'd be very interested uh, um, in talking about Bessemer, but it's uh, two separate questions. Um, uh, so about the indebtedness, the indebtedness is uh, something that emerges from the tendency to turn virtue into necessity that I mentioned before. Um, you, are, you, are, you are caught in this context, you don't have the possibility of an alternative. Um, Amazon, Amazon has invested millions in learning how to treat workers, how to speak to workers. Um, even though a lot slips through the cracks and uh, you know, um, we hear the horrible stories that we've been accustomed to, um, uh, Amazon is trying to create this collective identity of uh, we are all we are all passionate workers. Everybody wants to rise up the hierarchy. If you become a permanent worker in Amazon, you know, it promotes, uh, it's, it's got some mental health uh, support. It's giving you, you know, career advancement opportunities, blah, 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 blah. Um, so there is a sort of like, they, they, they are they're trying, okay, if anybody has read about uh, workers, uh, workers and uh, businessmen groups in fascist Italy, they're trying to do exactly that. They're trying to erase any sense of class identity, of class identification, um, and have the workers fully identify with 
the, with those above them, not necessarily with Bezos, but with uh, the managers, the supervisors, etc. And it's just a, like a human centipede sort of <laughs> sort of situation where you know um, the top. Uh, the, the people, the people on the top, uh, uh, abuse those at the bottom, and those at the bottom abuse those at the bottom, and it, go, it continues like that. But everybody is so tightly connected to each other um, that uh, you know they actually, at some point, they have to own this system because otherwise they'll go crazy. Um, and all of this is underpinned by the absence of a collective narrative. This is uh, this is the point that I want to drive home. Like this does not exist in a vacuum. If we are left-wing people, if we are anarchists, I am an anarcho-syndicalist personally. If we want to change the society, we cannot only be talking about what Amazon is doing. We have to give this other narrative. We have to give this battle. You also mentioned how far from reproducing the classic stereotype of the oppressive corporation that carelessly participated in racist, sexist, mm -hmm. and homophobic stigmatization, uh, Amazon invests both internally and externally in promoting a modern image of inclusivity and tolerance. This goal makes perfect sense. Why would the biggest multinational in the world lose productive workers on account of characteristics that do not impact profitability? If you could walk and you could communicate in English, you were good to go. Does Amazon promote an image of diversity in order to just have a access to a larger group of people from which they can find workers and employees? Is it simply about having greater access to workers who they can exploit temporarily and move on to the next disposable worker? I mean, of course. Um, however, saying that, uh, this, does not, this does not mean to discount the incredible struggles of uh, marginalized groups. Um, this, this was never something that capitalists wanted. This is something that you know, it's a, it's a, it's a reactive, it's a response. Um, I'm sure that they would rather keep, uh, you know, uh, uh, keep a chattel slavery system. <laughs> uh, but however, society being the way it is, um, yes, capitalism has managed to, to recuperate um, uh, identity-based movements to a degree and uh, use them to promote its own image of, you know, we are, you know, happy capitalists, we are inclusive capitalists, uh, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, okay, Black History Month, um, there were, as I write in the article, uh, the place was filled with, uh, you know, inspirational Black quotes by um, revolutionary Black leaders like uh, Barack Obama, uh, etc., and Serena Williams. Um, they were giving us like small, uh, you know, like quizzes that we could do, um, match, uh, the, ma match the figure to the quote stuff like that, you know, incredibly patronizing stuff as if you're, you know, just a, just a stupid child. Um, uh, similarly with, uh, the, the, with the weeks leading up to pride in Glasgow, the place was filled with like rainbow flags, etc. But the conditions were the same. I mean, obviously, you know, the fact that it was Black History Month, that, that's actually, that's, that's, that's an interesting, that, okay, this is an interesting example of how racism really operates or one of the ways in which racism can really operate. Um, in the warehouse in Glasgow, um, uh, it was about 50% black people from the, from the precarious workers, from those who were on the shop floor. About 50% of them were black. Uh, most were from Nigeria. Uh, so, you know, Black History Month comes along and it's, uh, you know, the place is covered with uh, Martin Luther King's face and stuff. However, not a single black worker was per made permanent. Uh, and actually during Black History Month, they fired three of them. Um, and uh, the managers themselves were extremely racist. Like, 
when they were chilling on their break, um, you could hear them say things that uh, um, you can only hear in a KKK rally or something. Um, but, you know, officially, Amazon respected Black History Month. However, that did not change the conditions of the black workers there. And you write many of the managers and supervisors that participate in this circus have themselves been through it as agency workers. They are not malicious or evil. They have simply been more fully sculpted and are thus invested in the performance because they deeply believe in it. Now, this kind of correct me if I'm wrong, but this kind of sounds like a pyramid scheme on the peer or the pyramid selling strategy in multi-level marketing. When those who benefit are invested in perpetuating the scheme because it has worked for them. So they are convinced there's nothing wrong with the scheme, obfuscating how the system exploits and undermines worker power and wages. So is Amazon like a pyramid scheme or is that a mischaracterization? And it's uh... Hmm. I wouldn't call it exactly a pyramid scheme, simply because uh, I don't know. I, I'm, 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 I'm a little bit. I don't think it's the best characterization, but your the essence of what you're saying is absolutely correct. It's uh, it's more along. It's more like the sort of like the American dream sort of uh, mentality of like, you know, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and uh, I worked so hard, blah blah blah, and now you should do the same, you know. Um, it's more, it's more sort of that thing. Um, however, uh, this uh, is very interesting because, uh, obviously, you know, you would think that if somebody has been through, through hell, uh, pun intended, uh, if somebody has been through hell, then they would be more, uh, um, tolerant and have more solidarity for those who follow them, who are behind them, who are earlier in that process. However, um, uh, and especially when it comes to immigrants, um, uh, this was not true. Um, my main sort of focus of uh, study was, uh, is the intersection between migration and work. Um, so I was observing a lot how the immigrants uh, were, um, were interpreting their own condition as immigrants and as workers. And it was very interesting that, uh, for example, one of the main managers was a Bulgarian, and the guy was extremely racist towards the black people in the in the job. But he was also um, uh, he was he was also a machine. Like the guy was the guy was working as if uh, you know he was he had a power source somewhere, um, and he had this mentality of even though he was an immigrant, he hated other immigrants because he was like you know I came to this country, I worked hard, I paid my taxes, blah blah blah. And uh, now I've got a good job and uh, I want to, you know, sh- close the door behind me. Sort of like, you know, the, the Latinos that were voting for Trump um, in your end of the world. Um, so, yeah, this, uh, this sort of mentality um, uh, is not, doesn't just extend, it, it isn't just confined to the sphere of work. It's, uh, it, it extends to all aspects of your, of your life. Um, and this is what makes the socialization of that places such as Amazon create, this is what makes it so dangerous. Because in many other jobs, you go to work, you finish work, you leave. It's fine. Amazon, because, because of the way that the shifts are organized, because of the constant competition, because of the insecurity, um, you're, you're, because of the responsibility, because of the fact that you're monitored by a faceless computer and you have no access to see your statistics and stuff. Um, because of all these plethora of factors, um, uh, your life in Amazon, your life as a worker in Amazon, extends to all levels of your 
of your personality. You you become an Amazon worker even when you're not working in Amazon. Um, yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it's extremely dangerous and scary. Uh, so, to what extent do you think Amazon is simply trying to brainwash their workers into being opposed to unions, and are Amazon workers brainwashed into opposing unions? Um, so I think uh, probably you can still find a video on YouTube um, uh, where uh, somebody somebody leaked uh, the video that uh, Amazon shows to its uh, new to its new workers about unions, and it's like you know it's, it's something disgusting. It's basically just like you know in Amazon we don't need unions because we believe in working directly with the managers and the workers, and we will support you, and uh, we are all a big family, and if, every, if anybody has any problems, you can come and talk to us, and you don't need these bad people who are just trying to stir, stir up trouble and stuff. So basically, it was in your face. Like, uh, Amazon has a union-busting campaign in your face as soon as you enter the place. Um, uh, later, uh, they pulled it. But, you know, this mentality permeates uh, all levels of, uh, you know, existence in Amazon. Also, there was a recent article about Amazon using the Pinkertons, hiring the Pinkertons, which are uh, a notorious uh, sort of uh, group uh, uh, active. It's a company, it's a private detective company, something like that. Um, and uh, they were the ones that uh, had this... Um, you know, when, when Alex Berkman shot uh, this guy Finch back in the 1880s, uh, it was the Pinkertons that were used as strike breakers to kill, you know, and shoot uh, striking workers also in the Ludlow massacre, I, I believe. Anyway, so Amazon has hired the modern incarnation of the Pinkertons in order to uh, conduct surveillance operations and uh, union busting operations against its workers. So it's uh, these things are not you know they're not done behind the scenes. It's uh, it's open, and uh, Amazon is not ashamed about it. And the Pinkertons, as you point out in your article, were used in the Bessemer, Alabama, uh, attempt at uh, the Amazon warehouse there, attempt at unionizing there. Uh, not only were Pinkertons used, but as a woman, uh, Catherine Humphreys, a 24-year-old who was working in the Bessemer uh, Amazon warehouse where she was trying to get unionization moving forward. She was talking about how they were being constantly misled, either by leafleting that was happening by uh, Amazon within their warehouses, or at times they, she talks about going to a meeting and them showing images of the contracts that showed that they were going to be getting paid less money by the unions, but in fact those contracts were not the union contracts. It was a completely misleading presentation by Amazon. So what do you think is the more is it intimidation that Amazon uses to stop unionization or do they, can they simply just mislead their workers because they've already trained their workers to be anti-union? Um, it's a mixture of uh, misleading information. Obviously, these are tactics. These are sabotage tactics, right? So um, the, in any in any in any struggle, um, uh, you're going to have uh, these uh, these practices. Um, and uh, I don't think that's bad. I mean, I don't think it's bad in the sense that, as I said before, Amazon is going to look after its own interests. And this is war. This is class war. So we shouldn't be surprised by, by them doing that. We should be surprised if they suddenly say, OK, guys, here, you're allowed to organize uh, with my blessing. That's not going to happen. So, uh, yes, it is intimidation. Yes, it is that many workers, to varying degrees, but many workers are fully participating in the system. Whether it is that they actually believe it, I don't think that many believe it, but they know that for individualistic purposes, if they play along, 
they they um, improve their chances of getting a permanent contract and rising up the occupational hierarchy. So they play along. Um, so that, this means that they do believe it um, to some extent. So it's a mixture of the two. But, um, and I don't know again how the situation is in the United States. However, in the UK, um, uh, the vast majority of people are ununionized. Um, and also the vast majority of people, probably if you speak to most people under 25, they don't even know what a union is. Like I've worked with many people who don't know what a union is. I've worked with many immigrants who don't know that they're allowed to join unions um, if they're an immigrant. They think that it's something only for locals. Um, so... We are sort of putting the, how do you call it, this expression, we're putting the cart before the horse at this point. Because, again, how are people supposed to organize um, if they don't even know what a union is? There's something that we, we are doing wrong. Um, so, yes, there is intimidation. Yes, there is the fact that people believe in it. But uh, even if there was no intimidation and uh, people didn't believe in it, Unions are non-existent from in most of these places. Um, so, yeah. And you you point this out. You write that how uh, while global unionization drives at Amazon warehouses are noteworthy, the reality in most UK sites remains bleak. Even in the weeks leading up to a momentous coordinated strike by Amazon workers in Europe, we did not see a single union leaflet or representative outside our workplace. Most workers had no idea that a strike was even taking place. To you, what explains this lack of union presence during a supposed Europe-wide strike? What explains the disconnect between organized labor and the precariousness of Amazon workers? Right. This is a huge discussion, once again, which I would, I am very happy to have. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of uh, intersecting uh, issues here. Um, so, my union at the time, were the, I was with the Industrial Workers of the World. Um, this is a radical union. Um, I presume your audience has heard of it. It originated in the United States. Um, so with them, the situation was a simple uh, issue of lack of resources because it's a small union. No matter how radical it is, um, we tried to do a few, a few leafleting sessions outside. Eventually, we burnt out. It wasn't a hot shop. It was hard to, you know, uh, sustain these drives. So, you know, this folded. Um, uh, there are some, some other small initiatives by autonomous uh, union-like um, uh, movements in the UK which are attempting to organize uh, Amazon workers from the bottom up, but again, without, without resources and without a, a noteworthy expenditure of energy, um, these things are difficult. So let's go now to the bigger unions, the ones that have money, the ones that uh, um, have resources. Um, uh, the UK has... Uh, at least two huge unions that uh, have the capacity to organize uh, Amazon workers. And one actually is active in a few Amazon warehouses, but they do not empower their workers. Um, uh, they, you know, the, the organization of a strike or of uh, any sort of activity is very top down. It leaves the workers disempowered. Most people don't even know that there is a union in the warehouse. Um, and then even for, the, even in the play, in the, uh, sorry, even in the locations where there is a union, um, the union is mostly focused, uh, is mostly catering to the permanent employees. Um, there is this myth that uh, uh, temporary workers are unorganizable, quote unquote. And this is uh, absolutely stupid. It's, it's not true. Um, but, uh, you know, unions, uh, unions are stuck. The big unions are stuck in a way in a, modem of, in a modus operandi 
that uh, is applicable to the we to the Western Fordist, um, uh, how do you call it, architecture of the working class, um, not to this intensely precarious, fragmented uh, working class that exists right now in the West. So even when they, you know, every once in a while, you know, they will, they will not have enough members or they will, you know, they will feel guilty or something. I don't know what causes them to start organizing drives. But even when they start organizing drives once in a blue moon, um, very rarely does it extend to the actual precarious workforce. And this is the workforce that actually acts as a sort of a surplus reserve army. Um, as Marx said, this is the workforce that on which, upon which capitalism relies right now to make its profits. And actually, this is the workforce upon which Amazon relies right now. So if you don't find a way to organize these workers, and organizing them does not just mean having numbers on paper. This was something, for example, that was evident in Bessemer. Yes, they got many people to join the union, but did they empower them? Did they teach them how to organize? Did they give them any resources? Did they give them any tools? Um, if you don't do that um, and you want to create this sort of like top-down hierarchic uh, leadership-focused uh, organization, okay, you know, good luck, you're going to do it, but you're not going to change anything in the structure. I think that recent, uh, uh, recent defeats have shown that. And you write that unions are supposed to empower workers, especially the most exploited segments of the workforce. In the UK, the opposite is the case. The more precarious one becomes, the least likely they are to find a union in their workplace. The temporariness and yep. acute mobility associated with agency work means that even if a union were to attempt to organize precarious workers, it would be met with profound logistical difficulties. Temporary postings and the threat of arbitrary dismissal make it hard to build the trust required to engage temp workers in conversations and organizing. So is it, Panos, is it possible to organize precarious workers, which means we are looking you know, I'm afraid we're looking at a future of only precarious work uh, and that we are grateful for our employer for giving us work. So what happens when workers have that complete lack of power? And is it possible to regain that power when it comes to precarious workers and labor organizing? I think that uh, I think that it is. So what happens when workers don't have the power? Basically, something like what is happening right now. I mean, I, I don't think that we are in any serious position right now as, as an international, let's say, working class to, let's say, seriously challenge employers tomorrow. We are like in various parts of the world, you know, India, Italy, Germany. OK, there are some there are some bright spots of organizing. Um, but as a general working class, uh, you know, we don't have power right now. So um, I think that uh, if we don't uh, start uh, gaining power, um, this thing will just continue. Um, it, things will become even more precarious. Um, they, I don't think that capitalism will make it completely, completely precarious because they still need people to have money so they can consume. But they will take it uh, to the lowest common denominator, you know? So uh, that being said, um, I don't think that I think that I think that it is possible to start organizing, um, and I think that uh, you know there are many defeats, but there are some victories. Um, Italy, for example, uh, is, is an important case of uh, precarious workers organizing, um, and also obviously you know in the United States uh, you have uh, you have a new example every every day almost of precarious workers organizing. 
Um, so I think that, you know, I don't think that everything is lost. Um, in my country, Greece, we suffered an immense defeat with uh, the economic crisis of 2010 and then with uh, the left-wing government's capitulation in 2015. Um, and this should have decimated any and all oppositional activity. And we're still fighting. Um, and we have pretty good numbers um, for, for a country of our size. So, you know, there, the, the radical culture is there, um, but uh, we need to change the way that we do things a little bit, in my opinion. And one of the ways that you explain how we can do things a little bit differently is you write that the engaged and empowering presence of radical unions and other social movements in our communities is a critical first step for us to begin imagining alternatives to this dystopian abyss. Since reaching workers in their workplace is not only difficult, but could even jeopardize the workers' livelihoods, the neighborhood emerges alongside the shop floor as a crucial site of struggle. This could take the form of regularly holding outreach actions such as uh, stalls and events in working class communities instead of the centers of cities, which may guarantee higher participation on paper, but excludes vast sums of overextended and impoverished workers. So can labor organizing only emerge nowadays from outside the workplace with unions that are not tied to any single workplace, but all workplaces is what is needed a universal community, not workplace oriented labor movement? So uh, this is the part of the article where I received a lot of criticism from my anarcho-syndicalist uh, comrades. So I will take the opportunity to say that uh, I used an important word there. I said that uh, the neighborhood emerges alongside the shop floor, not instead of the shop floor. Um, no, the shop floor is still like as long as as long as we have a society that is organized in a class uh, manner, uh, the class struggle will be waged inside the shop floor. That is a fact. However, since workers are dispersed, since uh, workers are precarious, since unions do not even enter most of these places, yes, we have to find another way of reaching workers. And this, re and this actually is something which uh, um, unions and social which were doing even in the Fordist era. You know, they had like worker centers, they had, you know, community centers. Um, uh, the Communist Party, which was a Stalinist, uh, it, was, it was a Stalinist party, okay? But the Communist Party here in Greece had uh, community centers in every single neighborhood. And they had, you know, this uh, tradition continues here in Greece with autonomous squads, with, uh, you know, autonomous social spaces, even rented social spaces. And, you know, the, uh, workers go there, you know, and uh, unions, many unions operate, and many radical unions, to be more precise, operate through there. So instead of trying to chase workers in all of their different uh, workplaces that they might be, and, you know, you get one unionized worker in one place, and uh, that worker is going to be one worker in a in hundred workers, no power. You have another one in another workplace, one in 50, no power. Um, it's important to start building the neighborhood as a sort of supplement to the, um, to the, to the shop floor. This means that it is important also to create networks. So I'm not only talking about having physical spaces, which are, which are the physical spaces are not only important for, uh, for uh, class action. They are also important for the reproduction of our lives, of our sociality. Um, uh, there, you know, here in Greece, when the crisis decimated everything, um, uh, clinics started to be hosted in autonomous social centers uh, controlled by anarchists and by communists. 
um, uh, mental health, uh, you know, professionals started seeing people for free inside these places. So we're not talking only about the strict domain of class struggle. Or actually, to put it better, we're talking about the wide, the wider domain of class struggle. We're talking about building physical spaces um, that can nurture and reproduce both ourselves and the radical imagination. So that, we, we leave that to the side. In terms of specific class struggle, um, we need to create networks, um, uh, kind of like federalist networks. I think that right now, um, even if people have ideological disagreements with anarcho-syndicalism, um, the structure of how, a union, of how unions should be organized, um, it would be interesting for people to have a read uh, of some basic anarcho-syndicalist texts. Um, focusing on one shop floor you, uh, and basing your union activity on one shop floor, you create networks across industries, which means, especially right now in our precarious uh, landscape, um, it means that uh, workers can organize across industries and support each other. So, for example, you don't need you know, to have thousands of workers in one place to have a strike. Uh, the, the industry um, uh, collective, let's say, um, can organize a mobilization and workers across uh, different workplaces can join it. So we're talking about a multi-layered approach. First of all, we have physical spaces so we can secure um, the reproduction of both our lives and our efforts. Um, and then you create union networks across industries and across fields, uh, which will be both points of contact for workers and then uh, crucial nodes in the expansion of this, you know, uh, radical narrative. And if there are listeners right now who would like to find a physical space, a neutral space, a safe space where they can organize, just contact me, Chuck, at thisishell.com. We do have a space for that. You write also that other instances of radical autonomous social spaces can be found across southern Europe and are of inestimable importance to social struggles. These include radical social spaces such as K-Box in Athens, which operates on a range of domains, including hosting an autonomous health clinic and providing space for various social movements to organize, as you were mentioning. In Madrid, the the, uh, Fundacion Anselmo Lorenzo, tied to the radical CNT union, is a space committed to the preservation of historical memory and to the further political education of the masses. These are only two examples of how social centers connect concrete oppositional social action to practical creative empowerment. How much of a challenge? And is it the biggest challenge for radical social movements to prove their practicality? Is that their biggest obstacle to success to get the opportunity to show how what may seem practical, what may seem radical is in fact practical? So it's, uh, it's, it's weird because uh, yes, it's a huge challenge. Um, for many places, but uh, increasingly we see that, and you saw that also in uh, in the United States. A big example was uh, the the network of autonomous uh, of autonomous um, centers that uh, emerged uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Um, whenever there is a crisis, um, uh, it, it, actually it's 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 always radical social movements that come in to fill in the to fill in the void. The, the state is never there. The state is just uh, waiting on the sidelines, trying to utilize the crisis to pass even more measures uh, for, that will benefit the capitalists. Um, so yes, in day-to-day life, 
exactly because we don't have this presence, it's hard to convince people, you know, they're like, okay, you guys are just utopians, whatever. Um, this will never happen, blah, 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 blah. And you've got an uphill struggle. This is the ideological battle. This is the battle of ideas. Um, and again, it is to be expected. But whenever there is a crisis, um, our ideas, if we are organized and if we have the capacity to implement what we believe and what we talk about, then you don't need to prove it. Um, in 2011, again, I will refer to the Greek crisis, when they started destroying everything, all, if all the remnants of the welfare state were completely decimated, the anarchists and some autonomous and some communists, but it was mostly the anarchists, they squatted empty social spaces they created places where you know you can you can go for to have a coffee to have a cheap coffee it's important it sounds like it's not important but it's very important to be able to socialize <laughs> um they created you know places that you can go for uh, to watch free music they created places where you can organize they created uh, you know autonomous libraries and uh, actually um, okay, you know, obviously people were living, people are still living in intensely impoverished conditions. But you go to Athens and there, there are at least 50 places in Athens where you can enjoy yourself for free, you can learn for free, and obviously you can participate in political action. Um, and uh, this, these autonomous spaces are the only reason why the movement has sustained itself. If, if, we, if they, because I wasn't participating in that i was in the uk but if these guys hadn't done that uh in 2011 they, if they hadn't established this network of autonomous radical free social centers um uh, right now uh I, I couldn't even imagine what it would be like to even exist in athens so i think that we can convince people um but it starts from being physical and it starts uh, you know for, for, it starts with having a physical presence having a presence in society, having a presence in neighborhoods, have, trying to have a presence in workplaces. Um, and uh, obviously this means money. Um, you know, anybody who can contribute some money, um, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, instead of, seriously, you have 20, 20, 20 pounds, $20, don't buy a t-shirt, <laughs> you know, don't just, you know, Donate it to a place that's actually doing some good, uh, some good work. Because um, money is maybe, it's a vicious circle, you know? Uh, the more we don't have infrastructure, the more we cannot convince people. The more we cannot convince people, the more we don't actually have enough money to reproduce our efforts. So, yeah, that, I will stop the rant right now. Yeah, money is important. Very, very vicious circle, part of why this is hell. So one last question for you, Panos. Uh, we've been speaking with political sociologist, writer, and editor, Panos Theodoropoulos, who wrote the Roar magazine article, Rituals of Submission, Amazon's Creation of the Neoliberal Worker. Panos is a member of the Interregnum Collective and is currently based in Athens. One last question, in Panos, and... We do this with all of our guests, I promise. Our final question is called the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Yesterday, upon returning from space, Jeff Bezos said, I want to thank every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all of this. How does that quote reflect the way Jeff Bezos views his employees, the way he views workers? He is absolutely honest. <laughs> He's absolutely honest. I saw that quote and I was laughing for about 10 minutes. Uh, just, you know, a, a cynical, like a crazy it clown type of laugh. 
because he's absolutely honest. Um, it's in your face. There you go. We paid for all of this. Yeah. <laughs> so how does that make you feel as a former Amazon employee that you help pay for Jeff Bezos to go into space and he came back safe? Um, I would uh, like to be able to pay, like, I don't know, uh, an alien or like a Prometheus type figure to just decapitate him while he was in space. Um, and then they can, you know, use his brain to do whatever, you know, experiments they want to do as long as they take him away. Um, that's how it makes me feel. What can I say? But as I said, um, I'm not, I, I'm not surprised. I think, uh, you know, we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of pent up anger and, and frustration at what we're experiencing and uh, of course we should be angry but uh, at some point we've got to stop being surprised at these things and just take them for the bloodthirsty lifeless uh, androids humanoids that they are these are not they don't have feelings they don't have feelings if i don't care what he does with his family if he hugs his uh, if he hugs his daughter or something they are not humans uh, so i'm sorry for saying this so at some point we have to stop being surprised at these uh, sort of like uh, snake-like cold-blooded statements. These, these are what they are, and we just got to take them seriously. So why do you think he is so celebrated in the media? Because the, 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 he, he does uh, what the media, the media exists in order to celebrate people like that. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is Gramsci, this is hegemony. Uh, these are the basic tenets of uh, hegemony. Um, he is the poster boy uh, for the people who have been created in order to make him a poster boy. So again, it's a vicious circle. Panos, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Follow Panos on Twitter at Panos Theodorop, then the number six. And you can find out more about the Interregnum Collective at interregnum.live. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is really a Thank you very much. conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Uh, best of luck for the future. All right. Take care. <laughs> take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism. Since 1996, this is hell. And if you like what you just heard from Panos on Amazon, please support completely listener-supported. This is hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast, which features a brand-new monologue by me and a classic archived interview that is unavailable anywhere else online. Subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell. It's the 25th anniversary of This Is Hell this week, so please show your appreciation of 25 years of hell. This Saturday... July 24th, Jeff Dorchin will be appearing at Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, the bar downstairs from us, 2251 West Devon Avenue at 2 p.m. shortly after the world broadcast premiere of this week's This Is Hell on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiment. Jeff will be reading some of his all-time favorite moments of truth. Moment of truths? Moments of truth. Accompanied by live music, supposedly, maybe, but if you are a musician and aren't doing anything Saturday, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, and who knows, maybe you will be accompanying Jeff. That's this Saturday, July 24th. Jeff Dorchin will be sharing his favorite moments of truth live on stage, beginning at 2 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. This event will only last about an hour, so get there early so you do not miss a moment. Richard, please remind our listening audience what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners responding? This week's question from hell is, where did it all go wrong? Sarah H. Her answer is, with the invention of linear time. (laughs) I thought it was going to be the wheel, but linear time is much better. Jessica Ann, her answer is, away in a manger. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> Andrew S. His answer is ancient Mesopotamia. <laughs> when some idiot decided to settle down and invent agriculture. <laughs> Where did it all go wrong? Wojciak answers, when I drove my Chevy to the levee. Oh, God. And the levee uh, was dry. Oh, good Lord. Oh, good Lord. John T. His answer is shortly after the formulation of right and wrong. <laughs> Joe B. His answer is whenever I was, <laughs> wherever I was, when I decided I could fix it. <laughs> and our last answer for today is, sorry, uh, our question is, where did it all go wrong? David S. answers, Philadelphia, PA, <laughs> where Quill was put to parchment for both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. <laughs> You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can direct message it to us via Twitter. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth, we got an email overnight from Nicole who writes, My answer to this week's question mail, where did it all go wrong, is Utah. Nicole continues, four years ago, my partner and I were starting our careers as comic creators. We were keeping ourselves afloat by saying screw rent and driving across America for a third to a half of the year. We were just about to drive into Zion National Park when our car started to smell like burnt popcorn, and I considered the very real likelihood that I had destroyed our clutch going up that one really steep street in Seattle. This is all explaining her answer to where did it all go wrong, Utah. I run the Radical Podcast Exchange group on Facebook and have really appreciated you posting This Is Hell episodes there. It has become a welcome feature on my playlist, and I recently became a Patreon patron to This Is Hell because I just had to to hear that 2007 interview with Carolyn Nordstrom on the globalization of crime. So good on you guys for hooking me. Lastly, I would absolutely love to contribute something to your anniversary art show in September. I have a lot of poster art and books and stuff to choose from, but I'm attaching two of my more popular prints, and they are stunning. I am just dying to get down to Illinois to visit family in Champaign, but I have an unvaccinated kid, and so who knows? Otherwise, I would just come to the party in person. Best... Nicole. And we got another email about our upcoming 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show, This Is Art, which is happening again on Saturday, September 18th. Carrie writes, Hola, Chuck. I'm one of your lurking-ass listening fans. I want to nominate my partner, Hector Morieta, for your listener's party event on September 18th. He's a lifelong musician and composer with a wide range. He's mostly been holed up during the pandemic, writing and practicing. He's from Mexico City, but we are currently living in North Alabama, waiting out this situation and fully vaxxed. We would love to visit Chicago in September and meet you. You are awesome. Thank you for your work, Carrie. So Carrie did what anyone should do if they want to suggest themselves or musicians they would like to hear perform at our party again, happening on September 18th downstairs at Carrie's Lounge. Carrie sent a link to Hector's Bandcamp page, and that's hectormurrieta.bandcamp.com. That's Hector, M-U-R-R-I-E-T-A.bandcamp.com as well as a link to his YouTube channel, youtube.com slash user slash hmurrieta. If you would like to suggest an artist for our art opening, this is art that happens during the party up here outside our studio in the Second Story Studios Art Gallery, would like to nominate yourself or would like to recommend a musician or a musicians or a musical act to perform, 
again, like to even suggest yourself as the musical act, email us at chuck at thisishell.com with your suggestion or recommendation. Richard, uh, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? Tomorrow we have Haiti Action Committee's Seth Donnelly on his article, The Assassination of Jovenel Moisey. What next for Haiti? It was written for Black Agenda Report, and in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin gives an avowed centrist a lesson in radical socialist leisureism. 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 Do you say leisure or leisure? Le- Leisure. Hmm? <laughs> 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 I'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show host Chuck Mertz producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Richard for producing. Thanks to Panos for being our guest. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. You have been listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>